This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have such an important episode for you. This is a special episode in that we have the one and only visionary, Dr. Zubin Demanya. You know him as ZDogMD, and he performed the closing keynote for our Institute for Advancing Health Value Summit. He's a good friend of mine. He's someone that we're happy to have on the podcast. So this uh, episode, we're going to have uh, Dr. Demanya talk for about an hour on the hero's journey to health 3.0. And you're going to learn about what health 3.0 is and, and how that plays into value transformation. And then the last 15 minutes or so of the, of the episode, you're going to hear me asking Dr. Demania specific questions. And that's definitely not to be missed. ZDog MD is so aligned with what we believe in and what our work is all about. And so his conversation with us was all about reskilling and upskilling workforce, workforce empowerment, the transition to health 3.0 and a journey away from our old paternalistic system and a transactional system and one that's going to be more empowering to physicians, to workforce, to, to patients, and such a visionary conversation. And I'm so excited for you to hear it today. Race to Value listeners, let's kick it off to Eric introducing ZDog MD. So for our closing keynote, we have Dr. Zubin Demanya, also known as ZDog MD. He's a UCSF Stanford-trained hospital physician and adjunct clinical professor at UNLV School of Medicine. He was the founder of Turntable Health, and he hosts the ZDog MD Show, one of the top health and medicine podcasts in the nation. He was also he also has an outstanding podcast with Dr. Vinay Prasad called the VPZD Show. Through an engaging mix of song and humor and creative storytelling, Dr. Demania is known for examining the challenges of delivering compassionate healthcare in a severely dysfunctional medical system and finding collaborative ways to revitalize it. You know, I first met Zubin last year at a six-day semi-silent meditation retreat in California, and this is one of the most awakened guys I've ever known. Meditation and awakening, it's probably some kind of spiritual new age, hippy-dippy nonsense stuff, but I personally found an awakening, and I know Zubin as one that, beyond the Z-Doc persona and the ego, he's someone that truly is living in the present moment and is intimately in tune with what's going on in the world around us, and... uh 
You know, Zubin, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today on emotional resiliency in the healthcare workforce and burnout and moral injury and all of these things. It's, it's just so great to have you on. Wow, Eric, <laughs> you're going to make me cry before we've even started the thing. Like when I think back to the meditation retreat that you and I uh, did together, it just, it was such a transformative thing for so many people there that were in healthcare. Actually, there were 30 of us and most of us were in healthcare. And it just brings me to the point of what I'm going to try to do in the closing thing here. And thank you for setting all this up. Thank you to the Institute and Governor Levitt and uh, Dr. McClelland. We're all trying to forge a new way of being in the world when it comes to healthcare. It's not just a system, it's not technology, it's not just people, it's all those things in an intricate web. It's like an organism that evolves and healthcare needs to evolve because the people that it's serving us are, we're not the same as we were back in the day. It's gotten so complicated and so difficult that we're burning out our healthcare professionals. We're creating all this fragility. And the COVID pandemic just kind of put a, put a nail in it. It was like, you know, if you thought the healthcare system was bad before, which you probably did, if you had your eyes open and you were listening, well, this is going to prove that not only is it bad, it's completely fragile. All we have to do is one event and it basically falls apart and you put it all on the backs of the people who have been carrying it the whole time to their own detriment, which is the workers, the healthcare professionals that are running all of this. They are exhausted, depersonalized, cynical, or worse, right? And May, this is May, it's Mental Health Month. We have completely thrown the mental health of our frontline healthcare professionals, especially nurses in particular, under the bus. So what I wanna talk about though is, look, that's all gloomy and it sounds terrible, but the truth is this is the push, this is the sort of opportunity for everything to pivot to something that is so much better that you can't even comprehend it because it hasn't fully come into existence yet. And it's our role now to be open to see how we're going to manifest it. And this, this is what I want to talk about. You know, when it, whenever the pandemic hit, everybody was talking about, oh, heroes work here, right? If you worked in healthcare, there were signs out there, we're heroes. In a way that was beautiful, it was the honoring of the frontline healthcare professionals that were stepping up at great personal risk to take care of people in their time of need, right? When they're the most vulnerable. But it, it, in, in many ways, it was subverted in a way to say, you know what, these are our frontline workers, they're heroes, we can ask them to do anything, we can squeeze in them as much as we want, we can have the public abuse them, we can have payment models and systems and electronic health records and technology that grind them into pulp and they'll just keep taking the licking and keep on ticking, right? So heroes work here, it has two sides to it. So what I wanna talk about is the hero's journey. How does a hero living in one system wake up, struggle through the drama and come back home a totally different person in a different system? How do we take that hero's journey? So let's go through it for healthcare and see how we can get from health 1.0, which was the beginning of the journey in the 20th century, our old system, through health 2.0, which is what we're struggling through now up to health 3.0, which is, I think, the future of medicine, where everybody's being their authentic self in service of each other and our patients together with a system that supports that, payment models that support that, worker resiliency. It's actually beyond resilience. It's anti-fragility, which we'll talk about. So where does, where does the hero's journey start? 
for me, that journey always started, it starts where you begin, right? And for me, I began in the Central Valley of California in, in a family with two immigrant Indian physicians, a psychiatrist, my mother, which explains all of this, <laughs> and an internist, my father, who was in private practice in Clovis, California, rural, you know, rural town, uh, funny last name, thick accent. The only patients who would see him were the people with the interesting last names and the thick accents, our rural farm worker population, Spanish-speaking population. And even though he didn't speak a word of Spanish, these patients and he had a connection. It was a relationship. It was a deep analog connection because they were immigrants. And he loved them and they loved him. And it was about that health 1.0. And I, I saw this because he would make me come to the clinic because I told him I wanted to be a rock star, like, you know, Weird Al or something. And he's like, what is a Weird Al? I don't even, you know, putting, being a professional clown won't put naan on the table, buddy, okay? You, you need to come to my clinic to see what I do. So one day uh, you will now know what you're going to do. So that, that's the... That's the Indian immigrant ethos, right? The kid's going to do be a doctor, lawyer, or dead to me. Um, so I did. I saw this. And what I saw was Health 1.0 at its, at its finest. It was about a relationship. It was about touch and intuition. It was about really understanding the emotional and the social status of your patient because you had the time. There wasn't a lot of intrusion. There wasn't a lot of bureaucracy. And there was a lot of autonomy. And I saw that, and I saw this beautiful, sacred relationship between doctor and patient. Now, what I also started to see, though, that was interesting was, you know, whenever you have a system, and this is why the hero's journey starts, because something's not right. You know, when Luke Skywalker was on Tatooine, he could have continued, like, moisture farming and hanging out with his friends and maybe go to the academy. But he knew intuitively— didn't help that both his uncle and aunt were burned to death by stormtroopers, but he knew <laughs> that that was the sort of final, final straw, but he knew intuitively that something had to change. And for me, when I saw Health 1.0, and I think when people were in it, they saw something interesting. They saw a relationship with patients that was paternalistic. The doctor held all the cards and the patient just listened because there wasn't an internet. They didn't have all the information at their fingertips. And Doctors who are predominantly male and white, they kind of ran everything. There was other downside. Uh, since it was pure fee-for-service, you got incentivized to do things to people, not necessarily for people. So doctors in good faith said, well, you know what? If we can do things uh, like uh, a catheterization or a bunch of tests or whatever, let's go ahead and do that. And the, the patients would start to demand it because they became – acculturized to it and insurance as a third party was paying for it. So nobody actually had to bear, felt like they knew they were bearing the cost of it. And you had escalating cost. You had unnecessary procedures. You had a lot of waste. To some degree, you would have fraud. Um, there wasn't a lot of evidence-based medicine or systems thinking. So there was a ton of care variation that was unexplained. Like, why is that doctor doing things one way and the other doctor doing things a totally different way? And we don't have data to say which is better. And we have so much autonomy that they can do whatever they want and just bill and, and they get paid. So there was that kind of downside. And then there was the hierarchy. So in the days of 1.0, it was a dominator hierarchy. The doctors were in charge. Nurses were down here. Patients were like not even on the map in terms of empowerment. And it was a system that sort of thrived in that hierarchy. 
You know, and if you watch the old medical shows, you kind of see, you kind of feel that kind of hierarchy, right? Now, doctors pine for those days because they're like, man, I remember I'd walk in the room and a nurse would get out of their chair and they'd give you a chart and they'd give you coffee and they'd see if you needed anything. Um, and, and, they, and, you know, look, that sounds great until you realize that's not the highest game we can be playing. Like nurses are incredibly highly trained, empathic, wonderful caregivers. Why would you relegate them to any role in a hierarchy that isn't a growth hierarchy, right? So all this shadow of 1.0 starts to emerge. And believe me, government and industry and self-funded employers, they saw it too. And they said, nah, there's probably a new system that needs to emerge here. And this is what always happens, I think, in human history is you have a system it works pretty decently for the people at the time of that level of development. And then you start to run into the, the downsides of it and the shadow side of it as it becomes the dominant system. And then a new system starts to poke its head out. And then things start to shift. There's a, there's a catalytic event or, or 20 and the new paradigm emerges. And often it's a wave. So there's a bit of the old and a bit of the new. So 1.0 starts to give way to the wave of 2.0. Now, what's 2.0? 2.0, if, if medicine 1.0 was all about relationship and intuition, 2.0 took medicine as a model of a machine, a computer, a business, an assembly line. It's a different paradigm. So here's the hero in, in 1.0, and they're like, mm, this isn't right. I bet we could do this better. Look at industry. Look what they're doing. They have carrots and sticks and incentives and that drives efficiency and competition and that sort of thing, right? So maybe we can apply some of those business techniques to medicine. Let's take some of the technology in business like computer IT technology. So we can't read doctors' handwritings. Why don't we generate an electronic health record that then can help us to systematize things? We can actually get data from systems, measure things, and then determine outcomes we want based on this new thing, the randomized control trial and evidence-based medicine. So we can actually look at groups of people and go, well, what actually works and what doesn't? So we can start to narrow that care variability down. And this started to, to pop up and then people were like, well, you know, maybe we should think about, you know, instead of so much autonomy for doctors, maybe they ought to be more part of a, a system or an employed physician group or something like that. Let's get some healthcare administrators to manage the business aspects of this and, and maybe manage the care aspects because if we just let doctors do what they want, they'll just keep billing for stuff because that's how they're incentivized. It's not like they're bad people. You give them bad incentives, they're gonna do what they do. So the origins of 2.0 were in a deep need to transform healthcare. And we see this in the 80s and 90s as we start seeing managed care come online. The number of uh, healthcare managers and administrators goes up relative to the number of doctors. We have systems change at Medicare and in payment models and things like that. Um, HMOs start to rise up. But it, in a way, you can, you can look at it this way. If, if Health 1.0 was a very right-brained, holistic kind of relational model, Health 2.0 was a very left-brain, reductionist pick the parts out and try to recreate the whole from parts. So if we measure this part, we measure this part, we get these right, we'll create a healthcare system that provides an output of our assembly line that is what we want, which is health. Uh, the raw materials are us, frontline healthcare professionals, and patients. And we'll put in inputs in terms of technology and money, and out will come health. Well, I don't know about you, but I think most of us who 
work in healthcare know that human beings in healthcare and systems like that are cannot be reduced to widgets. It's you can understand parts of the system, but you can never recreate health using just the parts. And the downside, the shadow side of 2.0 is this reductionist dehumanization, commodification, and depersonalization that has led to what we call the burnout crisis, right? So what is burnout? So you guys who watch my show, um, and you know, listen, my background, I'm, I, I, I went to UCSF for medical school, Stanford for internal medicine. I was a practicing hospitalist at Stanford for about 10 years, got burned out in 2.0, and uh, ended up putting videos on YouTube, going to Las Vegas, starting a clinic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my, that was my hero's journey. So 2.0 was the, where the hero wakes up and goes, oh, we can make these things better with all this like bright-eyed stuff, but understand, and then hits the wall. And the wall was this idea of burnout. So what, what is burnout? Burnout is the end stage. It's like acute renal failure, it's chronic renal failure. Like when you're on dialysis, that's what burnout is. You're being dialyzed. For what? What was the chronic injury that led to your dialysis? Was it hypertension? Was it heart disease? Was it diabetes? No, it was chronic moral injury. So what does that mean? Moral injury is a term that's Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot uh, applied to medicine, and it comes from the military literature. Moral injury is when you have certain set of moral values, which most of us do, especially those of us who go into healthcare. We want to help people. We want to save the world. We want to heal disease. We want to end suffering. You're put in a situation where you have to compromise those values every single day in ways that create psychic wounds. So it's like death by a million paper cuts. Every day I go in in Health 2.0, I serve multiple masters. I serve my employer who has this set of values. I serve the insurance company that has this set of values. I serve the malpractice lawyers who have these sets of values. I serve my patients who I'm supposed to be, so that's why I went into medicine to do it. But then I have to serve myself. How do I survive, pay off my loans, serve my family? I need to be home for pajama time. I can't be charting. Well, it turns out those conflict almost every single day for healthcare professionals. Then you throw a pandemic in there and, oh, you have something called the great resignation where people have hit the burnout wall. And again, this chronic moral injury is partially systemic. It's partially because the way we frame our own worldview. Eric talked, he, when he introduced me, he talked about awakening. Awakening is a simply a way to look inside and go, what am I really? And, you know, realize that how I actually perceive the world and, and my own state in it actually has a vast effect on the world itself and my own suffering. And so part of moral injury is as clinicians, as front row, as frontline healthcare professionals, we're talking about workforce change here. We seem to think that we're to blame when things don't work, when we feel poor accomplishment, when we can't do everything for our patients and our family and our employer and everybody else that we have to serve. We take it on us. We go, well, we'll just work harder. We'll just sleep less. You know, it's really just, it, it, it's just some failure on my part. I didn't, you know, I'm not strong enough, whatever it is. And that in itself leads to a negative feedback loop that causes amazing amounts of suffering. And so some of it is we have to 
look inward. And some of it is the system is so wrong that it's generating moral injury. So the downside of 2.0 is an electronic health record that is really a cash register with a little patient stuff tacked on. Because why? Because it's still serving a payment model that doesn't make sense. We're still billing transactional widgets, which is not how humans are made. That's this reductionism of the machine model of 2.0. And as a result, you know, you have these technologies that are there with good purpose. Well, we need to fill this role, but the role itself is wrong. So a health record that's really designed for billing and compliance is not a health record that takes care of patients. It's a health record that turns us, the frontline healthcare workers, again, we're talking about workplace transformation. We've turned the smartest, most creative, most loving, most compassionate people in the world, the ones who are drawn to healthcare because it's a calling for them. Remember the hero's journey? That hero was the Luke Skywalker was drawn to the force. He was born to do this, right? And then here's the empire of 2.0. It's right in your face. And we've turned them into data entry clerks. That's what we've done. That's what 2.0 has done in its downside, in its shadow side. Yes, it's wonderful we have systems science, quality improvement science, trying to reduce care variation evidence-based medicine, systems thinking, population health. We need an electronic health record that works. All of that is necessary. But what we've done is we've turned all of this humanity into a widget on an assembly line in the machine of Health 2.0. So that's the shadow of two, and that's where we're struggling now. And when Dr. McClellan talks about all the different models we can do to bring accountability back and have uh, actual value-based care, that's Great, but that means we have to change entirely how we even deliver care, how we think about it, how we relate to each other. So in the apex of 2.0, when I was the most morally injured and burned out and you know, health record was live and I was at home doing pajama time typing and the, the, there were volume requirements and all this cookbook medicine where we had algorithms. If we don't do the pneumonia guidelines exactly right, we'll get dinged, even though that's not correct for the unique patient which by the way, I don't get to look at the patient anymore because I'm too busy being a data entry clerk typing into a computer, which has is, is, is turned our nurses into secretaries. Not that there's anything wrong with secretarial work, but that's not what they signed up for. They signed up to be with patients at their most vulnerable in a sacred space where they make eye contact. Okay, so at the apex of my own struggle, uh, I was done. I was like, I can't continue this. Like, there's no way I can continue to work in this. And, and, and this is the thing, you know, 1.0 and 2.0 coexist. This is why we can't just go full in on any model because there's this tension between the old shore, shoreline of 1.0, the fee-for-service, it's addictive fee-for-service, the autonomy, physician control, which is still in lots of parts of the country. And then 2.0, which is this boat that's like, mechanized and, and trying to get us somewhere, but we don't know where. And it's that tension. People have one foot in each and their crotch is like ripping down the middle, right? So where's the shore that we're trying to get to? So this is where a friend told me, hey, there's this book, you're miserable, you're depressed, you're burned out. Uh, there's this book, The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. Actually, at the time it was spelled H-I-A- H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt, but I thought it was spelled hate. 
And I told him, well, that's ironic that someone named Hate is writing about happiness. That's how sad I was in those days. And in the book, Haidt drew on the work of others like Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning psychologist who talks about system one and system two, to look at our minds and understand why we behave the way we do. And it applies to systems too, that our mind is a mind divided. And the biggest part and the oldest part of our mind is this, the elephant. So the elephant, it represents our primitive, deep, emotional, intuitive, unconscious mind. Hopes, dreams, fears, threat detection, disgust, love. All of that lives in the elephant. Some of it's genetic. Some of it's conditioned by our environment and our religion and our uh, schooling and our parents and our uh, surroundings. And some of it is inborn and it's unconscious. We don't even know it's there. We feel emotions, but we don't know where they're coming from. They're coming from darkness. And this elephant that, you know, if I say a word like, you know, anything, like right now, if I say Supreme Court, you might have a rush of a feeling that you don't even know where it came from, but it comes from your elephant, from this quick decision-making, right? And then, you know, the elephant, this intuitive thing, in the last, you know, and we share the elephant with tons of animals. It's you know, millions of years old evolutionarily. Dogs are pretty much mostly elephant. That's why we love them because they're just like all like emotion and joy and intuition and, and loyalty. And, and they're not thinking about stuff at a high level. Well, in the last million years or so, this little fella popped up on top of the elephant. So this little fella represents the writer, the element that's riding on this, on this other bigger elephant. In neuroscientific terms, this is our cerebral cortex, our frontal lobes, our higher thought, moral reasoning, math, verbal persuasion, um, thinking, planning, strategizing, the slow aspects of our thought, what Daniel Kahneman called the, the slow system that's conscious. So it takes more energy. It's deliberate. It's thoughtful, but it's slow. And that arose in the last million or so years. And we now have assumed, at least in healthcare, that this little guy is in charge, right? It evolved to show the, uh, to control the emotional and intuitive elephant. It's our logic and reasoning. It's what makes us human, right? Height and others have argued wrong. The writer is not the master in this situation. The writer is the elephant's press secretary. There's a good argument that the, <laughs> that the writer, our, our, all this conscious control evolved to simply, in a tribal society that humans have, to convince other people that our elephant is right. So in other words, we've already made a decision before we even know it. And then we have, our lawyer, the writer has spun a reason why we're doing it. And so here's a good example. If you say, you know, vaccinate uh, your kid for COVID to somebody. Now let's imagine that that parent had an elephant that when they were young was held down and got four vaccines at once 
was pre-operational, so it's all emotional. Doesn't doesn't have a lot of thinking or abstracting, and just remembers terror and needles and vaccines. Now that elephant hears vaccines for my children, and what happens? It immediately sends a signal: fear, make this stop. And so what happens? It tells the writer do something, and the writer who thinks it's in charge goes, "Oh, let me Google this and make sure that everything's okay." And the way they Google it is they they frame the search. Vaccines bad for children? Of course, Dr. Google gives the second opinion from Jenny McCarthy and Christiane Northrup and Robert Malone and all these people who've been spreading this kind of information. And it confirms what their elephant already felt. Now the writer tells the doctor, no, I don't think I'm not comfortable giving my child this vaccine because I did my research. That's the relationship between elephant and writer. If we don't pay attention to what's going on. Right. So if we're looking at changing behavior, you can scream at the writer all you want. Well, here's the data and here's the this and here's the that and here's the other thing like health 2.0. Or (laughs) you can understand that nothing's going to happen until you understand compassionately what's going on in that elephant. You align with the moral matrix of that elephant. What do they care about? And you motivate that. And then you gently direct that writer. And you go, okay, here are some simple things you can do because our goals are aligned. I know we disagree on how to get there, but you know what? You care about liberty versus oppression. You care about fairness versus cheating. You care about care versus harm. These moral taste buds that Jonathan Haidt describes that exist in the elephant. So how can we connect with each other? So now what does this have to do with health 1.0, 2.0, and where we're going? Well, everything. When I saw this, I said, you know what? Everything I've been doing... To, to change my patient's behavior because what I was seeing in the hospital was the failure of outpatient prevention. So now there's all this tertiary care. It's costing a ton of money. In the technology, I'm seeing that it's all writer. It's all like, well, we could just do this. And no, 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 no. You've lost the relationship, the heart of medicine here, the analog soul of it. You're ignoring the elephant. So what was health 1.0? All elephant. It was all about that intuition, right? Not much rider there. What's health 2.0? All rider. All left brain, right? All, um, you know, reductionism and widgets and transactions. Well, so the two don't get along. They're not, they're not speaking to each other. Between the left and the right hemisphere, there are these fibers called the corpus callosum. And if you cut them, it's like two different people in one mind. Well, that's what our healthcare system has been like. So it, it occurred to me, I'm like, wait, we can actually motivate the elephant with, I don't know, videos and parodies and songs and things like that, and then gently direct the writer through good education that doesn't make things too complicated and respects the elephant. And then we can look at ourselves and go, wait, the elephant and the writer are walking on something. There's a third element to this, which this, the Heath brothers in their book Switch wrote about. They built on this elephant and rider model of heights. And they said, the elephant and the rider are walking on a path. And the elephant is innately lazy and the rider goes with the elephant. So the how you shape the path will determine what the default actions are. If you make a healthcare system that's impossibly complex and you ask people to do the right thing in that system, they can't. So what is the shore we're getting to of health 3.0? It's a transformation of elephant, rider, and path where all three are transformed and integrated. 
and working together. So what, what, is that, what does that look like? What you have to do in, in, a, in a true evolution to a new system, in the hero's journey, is you've suffered. You saw the old system. You went through the new one. You've learned a lot. You've built a lot. You've suffered a lot. You see the downside. Now you wake up. You see what might be possible. You take risks. You open yourself to return on luck being available. And you go, okay, I understand a new framework's possible here. Elephant rider path. What can we do? And now you make that journey back and you try to transform things. So what does 3.0 look like? 3.0 looks at 1.0 and says yes to the relationship, to clinician leadership. We need clinicians as leaders along with our business colleagues together, right? It says yes to the autonomy and trust that we gave to our providers, our healthcare professionals. So yes to that. No to paternalism, no to the pure fee-for-service payment models that don't seem to work, no to the dominator hierarchy where this one group of people is in charge of everything, right? Then we look at 2.0. We go, okay, 2.0. What's beautiful there? Systems improvement, team collaboration, technological uh, AI that actually solves problems that are things that humans aren't very good at. Um, evidence-based medicine when applied correctly, good electronic health records that help us take care of patients. All of that is beautiful. Business systems that actually make it sustainable. American intuition and capitalism that actually can make it grow and sustainable in a uniquely American way. That's the beauty of 2.0. And I've already talked about the downsides. Reject. But by the way, if, if 1.0 was paternalistic, 2.0 is informative. You just tell patients, here's information, and then look back at the computer. You make a decision. You've got Dr. Google. You can take your second opinion there, right? And who has the power in 2.0? Not the doctors, not the patients, the administrative class, because 2.0 requires that big machinery of administration to run. Now, there's nothing wrong with healthcare leaders and administrators, but you can't have the hierarchy where now they're the dominator hierarchy. So what's 3.0? 3.0 takes those good elements, says yes and, transcends and includes them, and emerges something that's bigger entirely than the sum of its parts. It's the shore that you're trying to get to. So the first way to think about it is to think, okay, path. How would you shape a path? 3.0 is the first thing that says, you know, the path matters. How we pay for things matters. So value-based payment models, whether it's PMPM that Dr. McClellan was talking about, a kind of capitation, whether it's a revenue share, whether it's a Medicare Advantage where you're given money to keep a population of patients well, and if you do well, you actually make – you do better. And that alignment between doing good for your patients and each other, so there's no turnover, less cost, means you do well financially. Like that's a beautiful alignment. So aligning the path – with what we want for Elephant and Rider. And the way we did this at our clinic in Las Vegas, this, this was our idea. It's like, well, how, let's take these ideas of Elephant and Rider and PATH and how would we shape what we think is 3.0? Well, we said, okay, first thing, focus on primary care. Prevent disease to save money. Dr. McClellan talked about it. That's what you want to do. Okay, so great. So primary care clinic. All right, 3.0. Mm. We want our patients to see us whether they're well or whether they're sick because if, if 1.0 was a relationship, 2.0 was a 
or 1.0 is this kind of paternalistic relationship. 2.0 is a transaction. 3.0 gets back to a really partnership relationship, interpretive shared decision-making. So we want a relationship with our patients. So make, get rid of copays, make it a flat fee that an insurance company can pay or an individual can pay for all you can treat access to the buffet of primary care. Knock down the barriers that the elephant would trip on to seeing you when they're well, because the goal is keep them well. All right, team-based care. So you're talking about work, workforce development. Human beings in 1.0, it was all on the doctor. In 2.0, it's all on whatever you're doing and there isn't that feeling that you're supported by your employer or whatever. Every, it's, it's, it's a very depersonalized experience. In 3.0, there's a team where every single person operates in a growth hierarchy. So they're all part of a growth hierarchy. They may be really good at this, but not so good at that, which means in the huddle in our primary care clinic every morning, the whole team would get together, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, licensed clinical social worker to do behavioral health, and they would all talk about who's coming in and who's not coming in. It would be distributed leadership. One different person on the team would lead the huddle every single day, and we would have health coaches who are drawn from the community who may not have a medical background who would lead the huddle. So this kind of team-based, everybody practicing at the top of their gifts in service of each other and the patient is a deep uh, part of 3.0. And that means that leadership now goes from up here in the administrative class to a distributive kind of or like an organism, like each organ is kind of in charge of what it does, but there's a holistic connection between all of them. And so you have this team-based, knock away the copays, shape the path. Even our clinic design had a teaching kitchen in it. It had a yoga meditation studio in it. Now, where, where, is, where does that piece of it come in in 3.0? And again, you're talking about people who, do people want to work in a model like this? Well, our staff at Turntable were incredibly busy and incredibly happy. They were reconnected to their authentic selves and their purpose. Now, let's, let's talk about the meditation component of this. So when patients would come in, they would have anxiety, depression, substance abuse, et cetera. Our licensed clinical social worker, Nina Perales, would, she was also a yoga and meditation mindfulness teacher. Now, we get sold a lot of mindfulness in 2.0. Like, it's kind of like, almost like a muck mindfulness. Like the administrators will say, well, you know, you could just take this class on mindful breathing or whatever. And look, that's all great. But that is not what we're talking about here. What is real meditation mindfulness? It is quieting and sitting in quiet and watching the elephant and the rider, watching them as the awareness that you are instead of getting lost. I told you the elephant is just unconscious and, and conditioned, right? So how do you know what it's doing? Look at it, pay attention. That's what mindfulness is. Watching emotions and thoughts arise like clouds across the sky and realizing you're the sky. Now imagine giving a patient those tools. Imagine giving the rest of the team because they would take the meditation and yoga classes too. Those tools. Now, instead of getting feeling that anger, immediately spinning thoughts and telling a story about it. Well, it's that darn administrator doing this to me again. And then sending the angry email or, or internalizing that rage or you know burning out. You can stop and go, oh, anger. Oh, there's a thought about that. Yeah, is there truth to that? Hmm. Let me grow the writer to be able to watch what the elephant's doing and then behave response ably instead of just knee-jerk, right? So again, 
that's part of shaping not only the path, it's part of watching and recognizing and honoring our elephant and growing our rider, all three. And that was part of our clinic design, which again is path. If you're talking about um, getting into behavior change, you have to have people who understand the elephant. And that's why we had health coaches. The idea that somebody who's drawn from your community as a patient, who speaks your language, who isn't speaking medicalese, but who is part of the medical team, who can do the heavy lifting of developing a deep relationship with you, understanding what you're doing at home, where you're going shopping. Do you live in a food desert where there's no access to food? What are the dangers about going outside in your neighborhood and exercising? Those social determinants of health where your zip code is more important than your, D, you know, your DNA code. Um, that kind of thing, that hacking into our patient's elephants so we understand it and we can motivate it and we can connect with it, well, that's what our health coaches did. And again, part of the team. So that's a 3.0 model. And how did we pay for it again with this PMPM with a possible revenue share? Now, here's the thing. We had our, our, our staff, and by the way, our licensed clinical social worker would um, teach us in the, in the huddle about mental health and, and mental illness and mindfulness and all of that. So everybody's growing through the growth hierarchy. Many of our, you're talking about workforce development. Many of our health coaches went on to become nurses or go to PA school or to medical school. It's a growth. It's like this beautiful um, growth opportunity that's taking care of patients where you're getting a, a, a money to do the right thing for patients. And now here's the key thing. So much of our unhappiness in our current models is that our leaders don't trust us because, and honestly, it's hard to know whether to trust us because we're so broken by having to serve all these different masters that it's hard to get anything right. So, you know, they don't trust us. They, they, they make sure that they measure, oh, I know how much time are you spending doing this and what are you doing with that and this. Instead of just saying, here are the tools, resources, and autonomy to do your job, we trust you, and it'll show up in the bottom line if it's working. Well, so that's what we did in our model. There's a term in the business community that's a little wonky. It's called capability. So capability simply means do, do, to feel capable in your job, and you can <clears throat> measure this in surveys of, say, physicians. To feel capable, you have to have feel like you have the tools, the technology, right? the resources, meaning the team, the human resources. And here's the key thing, the autonomy meaning my leaders trust me, my team trusts me to do the right thing. The autonomy to make decisions. And if you have those three things in the right balance, you will feel capable. And Athena Health did a study where they looked at organizations and organizations that had high capability scores for physicians had less turnover and better profits. Again, doing well by doing right. So how do you generate a workforce that feels capable? Well, you give them the tools, resources, and autonomy. And how do you do that? You transform the path with all the things that have been talked about during this course. You change policy, you change payment models, you change relationships between insurance and providers and frontline staff. You change, you knock down the dominator hierarchy and you make it this collaborative. Health 3.0 is like a living organism. And you talk about the fragility of one and two. You stress the system, it breaks. 
Maybe it got resilient during COVID where people were just pushing through and gritting their teeth and resisting and coming back and being like, oh, I can do this. But what is 3.0? It's anti-fragile. What does that mean? Think of a child. If you stress a child out a little bit or even a lot up to a point where you give them an adverse childhood experience, before that point, within parameters, they don't just resist the, that stress. They take it. They grow new muscles and new brain cells, and they're better off afterwards. They've gotten stronger. That's what an anti-fragile Health 3.0 system does. COVID comes along, Health 3.0 immediately, because of its team-based nature, the other piece which I haven't talked about, which is the technology now that empowers the human relationship, which I'm going to talk about. So technology, tools, resources, autonomy, and the payment model that says just I want outcomes to be good. That's it. What does it do? It adapts, different pieces move, different growth hierarchies start, and like an organism, it changes, it evolves. And now it's ready for COVID. It's ready for something that comes after COVID. And that that's you, that's how it has to be. So you now go into trust, which allows for autonomy. You give tools, which means technology. So technology means right now we have technology that serves itself or that serves a, a, some bean counters idea of what healthcare should be, the reductionist 2.0 model. What if technology actually did what it does best, which is the mechanical intelligence that humans aren't that good at? And then it got the heck out of the way and enabled the human relationship, which is only what humans can do. I mean, this deep intuition that comes from our heart, that comes from love, that comes from compassion, that comes from consciousness, the awareness and the comprehension that there's a human being in front of you who has a story, who has a lived experience, who's here present. You can feel it energetically in the room. That's why staring at a computer while you're talking to the patient is just wrong. It breaks, it severs that sacred connection. So you have now this human connection that causes healing. What is a placebo effect? To some degree, it's the therapeutic alliance between the caregiver and the other human. The expectation that someone cares, someone's witnessed my suffering, the communalization of my pain, and now I can get better. So what does technology do? If you have an artificial intelligence, if you have technology, it does all the work on the back end that clinicians have no business doing. Because A, they're not good at it. B, they shouldn't be good at it. Why the hell are we teaching our nurses? Talk about workforce development. Why are we teaching our nurses and doctors to become data entry clerks and secretaries? Is that what is that the best use of their powers? We're talking about the hero's journey. They're, they're born with these superpowers. Why are we making Clark Kent become a, a, a reporter at the Daily Bugle? All right? that, that's not his calling. His calling is he's Superman. Well, it's the same with our healthcare professionals. So the technology does what tech does and gets out of the way. So you talk about AI. Is AI going to replace humans? Yeah, it's going to replace all the mechanical intelligence humans do. Will it replace humans? Heck no, never, never in an infinite amount of time. Why? Because they will never have an internal awareness. And I have reasons to believe that. They will never have an internal awareness like we do. And it's that internal awareness that forms the deep connection that only humans will be able to form that heals. That's what healthcare in 3.0, the heart of it really is. So Boris Kasparov, when he was beaten by Big Blue, the IBM AI, it took some years for him to recover. And he came to this conclusion because he was playing with AI. And he said, you know what? That AI can beat any human alive. But you know what? You give me that AI as a tool 
and you give me the autonomy to do what I want with it, and I will beat any machine and any human and any human machine because I'm Boris freaking Kasparov alive. That's what medicine is in 3.0. You give us the tools and we will actualize them because you've given us the trust and autonomy to do the right thing and that will generate the bottom line in the new payment models. Elephant, rider, path, integrated. Mind, body, spirit, you can think of it that way too. The idea that you really need to turn inwards as well as part of 3.0. If we don't wake up ourselves and realize, wow, we've been chasing all the wrong things, we need to chase our authentic purpose, whatever that is. Sometimes that means being still and feeling into what that is. Sometimes that means reminding yourself in a busy day when there's a lot of externalities, We're talking about, again, workplace anti-fragility, before you step into that patient's room, teaching people, saying, hey, you know what, here's what you can do. Become very present, become very mindful, focus on everything that you're grateful for, that this opportunity to be with someone who's a difficult patient, that they're there vulnerable and they're gonna share with you and you get to connect with them and be, be connected to your own deepest calling. Like taking 10 seconds to be present with that before you go in the room, reframes the entire energy in the room. And you're not staring at a computer, but maybe the computer's scribing for you. So you're not writing that note. Like there's so many ways to do this that we don't, we're not even nearly aware with. And, and that brings me to this, this piece, you know, I mean, Warren Buffett recently said this, oh, how do you beat inflation? And Buffett is like 91 is like, you know, stocks are gonna, they're not gonna do it for you. Cash isn't gonna do it for you. All these like different things, they're not gonna do it for you. The way you beat inflation is you invest in yourself. So if you're gonna generate a workforce for Health 3.0, you have to get, first of all, teach the workforce to invest in themselves. And then you as a leader have to invest in your, in your people. That's the key thing that grows everything. Now, people will say, well, and I could tell you, I could talk for hours about how our clinic worked and all that and why we failed. We failed because our, the path got disrupted. Our insurer, Nevada Health Co-op, went out of business and we couldn't support 4,000 patients. 4,000 patients disappeared overnight. But then our partners, Iora Health, continued the model in Medicare Advantage, different path, now merged with one medical and now doing this at scale with a publicly traded company. There are bright spots that you can show your elephants out there because our system has a collective elephant. How do we transform it? wake it up. It's so bound by inertia and afraid. We're so afraid to go to the next level, right? And so I can show you all these bright spots, but I can tell you, I don't have the answers for everything. When I see Dr. McClellan talking about the different policy, you see what a challenge it is in the weeds, but here's, here's how I think about that. And then I'm going to go to, I'm going to ask Eric to hit me with some questions from the audience. And my friend, Daniel Schmachtenberger uses this analogy. So just when it feels the darkest, we're in 2.0 and we're wondering, you know, he's talking about 3.0 and, oh, you know, that sounds great and dandy, but how does it work in specialty care? And how does it work in hospitals? And how does it work here? I don't understand how it's going to work for a respiratory therapist. And how do we, how do we teach our medical students and grow our nursing students and, and that kind of thing to work in a 3.0 model? It's like, all yeah, those are great. We have, those answers will come. But the way you think about it is like this. Look at, a, if you were an alien and you came down to earth and you looked at a caterpillar, what would you see? You didn't know anything else. You just saw that caterpillar. And the caterpillar didn't know anything else. And it, was just, it just knew itself at that moment. You go, dude, this thing's a piece of crap. Like, it's ugly. 
it's destroying its environment. It's eating, 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 using all these resources, eating all these leaves. It's pooping where it eats. Like this is a self-terminating process. This is not, oh, I don't know. That sounds familiar, like a three-point-some-odd trillion dollar spend or half of federal spending, if you include Social Security fees and all of that, go to, go to health care, and we get some of the worst outcomes in the developed nations, and we have 60% of doctors who wouldn't recommend the career to their kids. <laughs> that sounds like a caterpillar to me, eating, 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 pooping, and it just looks terrible. And you look at it, and you go, this is terrible. The hero's journey at, at, the, ape, at the bottom of the, the despair, the existential horror that happens during the hero's journey when Clark Kent has got a kryptonite around his neck, and he's like, this is never going to work, right? Look at that caterpillar. The alien looks at it and it's like, that's a self-terminating process. Then what happens? All the work, everything that that caterpillar has done, all its suffering, all its struggles, all its disappointments, all its success, all its heartbreak have come to a point that it doesn't even understand and it just becomes still. And in the stillness, it weaves a cocoon around itself and then it's even more still. And then a transformation happens. Every organ in its body is transformed in ways that you couldn't even, how would you even predict that that would happen? And yet every single organ as it was, was necessary. All that eating and pooping was necessary for what was going to happen. And then out comes, we know what comes out, right? It's beautiful. It can fly. It has infinite degrees of freedom. And it's gone from an agent where it's destroying the whole because it thinks it's separate to an agent that pollinates and restores and is a steward of the whole because it knows it is both a part and a whole and part of a whole. That's what Health 3.0 is. We don't even know what will happen, but putting in the sweat equity now with conferences like this, with institutes like this, with people like you going, God, okay, well, pretty soon things are going to emerge and one day there'll be a phase shift. It won't be one day. You'll see, you know what? And then suddenly we'll have a system we couldn't even predict, but it'll be beautiful. So we can't stop. Eric, over to you, brother. Zubin, brother, I appreciate all of what you have to say. We're trying to catalyze this movement to Hell 3.0. My first question for you, Zubin, you know, I wanted to talk about this hero's journey. Yesterday, of all things, it's quite apropos, but it was Star Wars Day, you know, may the fourth be with you. This whole, like, hero's journey monomyth, you know, it was described by Joseph Campbell, and for, you know, our attendees out there, this is someone that did a lot of work in comparative mythology and comparative religion, and he studied all the religions, all of the greatest literary achievements, mythologies, folklores, fairy tales, and he found that all of these consisted of a hero who goes on an adventure. It's someone that is victorious in a decisive crisis and then comes home changed and transformed, and obviously I brought up Star Wars because that applies to Luke Skywalker. But it also applies to Jesus and Buddha and Krishna and Apollonius of Tiana and Odysseus and Superman, as you mentioned earlier, and Harry Potter and others. And Zubin, I'm just thinking about this archetypical hero's journey, and it's all about that self-discovery, like understanding that there's an elephant and a rider. And you, you become captivated by a concept. You're self-aware. You believe in your soul that you're doing something that's tied to your life's purpose, which is you know connected to what you said about investing in yourself and you know Warren Buffett's uh, advice about beating inflation. So that's what we have in front of us. Our listeners, our attendees out there, they're leading these 
value transformations in their respective organizations and they're going through immense suffering right now and it's difficult for them to sometimes have the authenticity to be self-confident and to believe in their vision to follow their own bliss and to pursue their hero's journey so i just wanted to ask you zubin you know just kind of as we kick off uh you know, some of the Q&A here, you know, what would you tell our attendees out there that are you know, on a path and, you know, they believe in tapping into that sense of altruism of why they got into medicine or nursing or the health professions in the first place, but they, they just feel disenchanted and, and they feel like they don't have agency. You know, what would you tell them in terms of, you know, how to follow their bliss and find their own path to the hero's journey? Man, ah, you put that so well. And Campbell uses the term, he kind of invented follow your bliss and this idea that, uh, the hero's journey requires all the suffering. It requires you to go through that torment and misery. It, it really does. And that gives purpose to suffering. It gives meaning to suffering. So when you're looking inside and you're going, do I deserve a hero's journey? Because many people don't feel worthy of that. Especially, especially if I'm being totally frank here, our nurses, so many of them, are victims of trauma as children have been through things and that's part of what draws them to caring for others it's a kind of wounded healer archetype and many don't feel worthy enough to turn inwards and say you know what i'm doing this thing for me for my own growth this hero's journey i'm actually going to leave this organization and go out and do this or i'm going to do little reforms in, in my own way you know like turning around the ehr so the patient can see what I'm typing. So they're part of their care. These little pieces that are authentic to what I believe, and they don't feel they're worthy of doing that, or they feel that they'll be stomped on if they do that. Or, you know, that's so much of it is we have to understand it's our birthright to be us. You feel into who you are. And when you actually are allowed to then take undertake, you're on the hero's journey already. Then you see these things. You go, oh, well, now I understand the concept of, say, elephant and rider, or I, I understand these different models that maybe there's somewhere that, oh, that really is triggering something deep here that I'd never, I'd always kind of known was true. Maybe I should go do that. And then opening yourself to what I've heard called return on luck, this availability. Then when something good happens, you're there that's aligned with you. So I would tell people, own it. You're worth, you're worth it, and it's not about you. So, the, the, Eric, at one point I remember in the retreat, I'd had this very amazing experience of the self disappearing and realizing all this time I'm spending meditating and trying to work on myself is not about me at all. The me is gone. It's about every being that I connect with benefits from this. And that's for, especially for caregivers in our profession, to know that the deepest altruism is to turn inwards and transform yourself on this hero's journey. That it's a powerful thing that, that I think motivates us. Oh, I love it, Zubin. And, you know, let's, let's revisit this concept of the elephant and the rider, you know, I, you, that, that's such a great metaphor that Jonathan Hype had. And, you know, a lot of us are, we're on this elephant, we're holding the reins, the reins, we seem to be the leader, but as you explained, the elephants is often in charge. It's a six ton beast, <laughs> you know, and, you know, the rider and the elephant may disagree, but, you know, the rider is often going to lose. And a lot of the 
you know, how to regain, I, I think, this this path and create this authenticity and pursue this hero's journey is that self-awareness, you know, and to, to the, you know, what you had described and knowing your true self, capital S, and, you know, through mindfulness and other things. But there, you also have to have new cognitive tools for creating empathy and having compassion. And you have to understand, and, there, and there's so much, I think, in terms of our our own moral constructs and you know it, it goes down to our conditioning and biological you know aspects and genetics and the way we're constructed as humans but uh you know jonathan Haidt talked a lot about you know this construct of care versus harm and fairness versus cheating liberty versus oppression as you mentioned earlier some other ones as well but earlier today in our summit we talked about health 3.0 in this movement towards value-based care and as we heard Mark uh, McClellan, you know, talk about the economics, the payment models, the health policy, redesigning the system. But we also talked about this whole uh, moral aspect of value-based care. You know, it's just as much of a moral imperative as it is an economic comparative. But we're so hardwired in our own conditioning. We seem to have intuition and in our own moral matrix, but it may be flawed and i know you do a lot you speak a lot about having this alt middle type of awareness where you can internalize other viewpoints and and reconstruct yourself and your own thinking so you evolve and i think that's going to be what's needed in value-based care and health 3.0 as well as just being able to redefine the terms overcome the conditioning so zubin i just wanted to ask you you know just in in light of all of that how do you think we go about you know, trying to reconstruct our personas, our our intuition, you know, our, our sense of what we think is right to truly pursue what is right, which is the patient and in and, and, and creating a delivery system of care that's going to be anti-fragile and, and create the optimal outcomes. Man, I just lo I love the way you talk, man. <laughs> like that, that, that really is, this is, this is the way we need to be thinking is our moral intuitions, this idea that we have these moral foundations within us, all of us do, we're all trying to be good. And I mean, unless you're a psychopath, and in which case you have a defect that that doesn't allow empathy or compassion, but it may allow understanding other people so that you can manip manipulate them. Most people aren't like that. The vast majority of people are moral creatures. And so when we look at our healthcare system right now, it's almost impossible unless you're so conditioned and so unconscious, meaning you're all elephant and writer and you're not watching any of that, you're not aware, it's impossible to not be morally outraged by what we do. We financially assault people, patients, we have no price transparency. We talk about free market, but it's actually an oligopoly and it's price fixed by industry and government and it's not transparent. These are immoral under most of our moral matrix. Now, when you talk about, when we talk about alt-middle, what I'm saying is it's not a political stance. What it's saying is it's, a, it's an integral viewpoint where you, it's like 3.0. You're saying, okay, everything is a little true but partial and everything is a little perspectival, meaning if through this moral lens it looks like this, through this moral lens it might look like that, but I can honor all those perspectives as necessary while trying to integrate and synthesize a viewpoint that is, first of all, flexible, that holds convictions strongly but loosely and that's paradoxical but what that means is you can feel strongly about something when you synthesize that but you're willing to change and let it go and that means it's a natural evolution of humans honestly i don't think you can force it on people but i think even the way we talk about it sets a sort of it it shows 
the elephant. Hey, this is a way of thinking. And guess what? There's a, Height calls this moral elevation. There's a feeling of elevation, of a kind of a joy when someone who disagrees with you on things and you felt, oh, this was a bad person. When you connect at the elephant moral level and you understand each other from this shared alt middle higher viewpoint, there's a kind of elevation you feel like, wow, even though we disagree, there's a love there and there's hope that we're going to actually figure this out. Instead of being stuck in our kind of hive mind where we don't even connect anymore. So yes, I think this is going to be a crucial part of 3.0 because we have to understand each other in our own healthcare organization and then across organizations and then with our patients. To do that, you have to have, I think, ultimately an alt-middle kind of view that incorporates the other views and, and honors them. Well, Zubin, I wanted to pivot a little bit. We had a question from the audience about this recent case that happened with this nurse who, she was from the Vanderbilt Medical System. She was found, she's an individual nurse found criminally liable for a medication error, and it's just unprecedented. And, you know, the legal system, I mean, and it's raised a lot of alarm in the profession. You know, here at Western Governors University, you know, we are the biggest nursing college, and we're seeing, you know, that a lot of people are kind of questioning whether or not they want to go into, you know, you mentioned it earlier with, you know, 60% of physicians telling their son or daughter not to go into medicine. And we're seeing maybe some consideration of that within the nursing profession, especially if a nurse can be criminally charged for a medical error. And that's not to say that things didn't go wrong and she wasn't at fault. But what we saw in that case was a hospital that they didn't have the optimal systems in place. They threw her under the bus. They covered up the cause of death, as I understand. There's a lot that happened. And so it sets a, you know, I think a signal, you know, to the industry that, you know, and you, you spoke about this earlier where the administrators and the leaders in, in these health systems, they have to have the back of the workforce, you know, for this health 3.0 to work. And we're already dealing with a nursing profession that's extremely short staffed and strained and it's facing immense pressure coming out of COVID-19. So uh, Zubin, I just wanted to ask you, like, what do we make out of this and how do we pursue our hero's journey towards health 3.0 when it almost seems like the system is set up to fail against us? You know, how do we go about doing the right thing? Yeah, yeah, you got you, these are really great questions. So Redonda Vaught is the nurse and we've done videos on her and I've been following her story for the past few years actually and uh, talking about it. This is a great example where it's always darkest before the dawn. So before 3.0 comes, 2.0 really has to show us how much it sucks like at the worst possible way and and throwing okay, yes, she made a terrible mistake and it was horrible for the patient and but but everything happens and this is this is a piece I forgot to mention. Thank you for reminding me. Whereas both the previous systems are partially reductionist, 1.0 and 2.0, 3.0 puts everything back into its bigger picture, its context. So what is the context of Nurse Vaught's situation? She made a mistake. She was training another uh, supervisee. She was using a, a automatic dispensing system that uh, didn't connect to their EHR. You could override it. There was vecuronium in the thing, which probably shouldn't have happened. All these systems things, all the Swiss cheese holes align, and you get this mistake. Now, the thing is, we have systems in place to deal with this sort of error. It's called just culture. You identify, was there, was there willful neglect? Was there malfeasance? Was it criminal? If not, then you go through a, an algorithm. And honestly, according to her algorithm, first of all, she shouldn't even been fired. There should have been a lot of counseling and other things going on. So 
we don't even follow our own algorithms in 2.0 if it doesn't feel right. And I, I think that's just, it's got to change. That situation could ne probably never would have even gotten to that point in the 3.0 system. But in a 3.0 system, we would have said, okay, listen, first of all, you're another victim here because you've been responsible now directly and indirectly for the death of a patient. So we, let's counsel you. Let's figure out what goes on. Let's disclose all of it immediately, including to the family, because how can you have trust and authenticity and autonomy if you're not going to be honest with people? And so how, if I were a nurse, I would, and this was what was going to happen, there is no way I would enter that profession. Doctors are scared. Nurses are scared. But you know what? It's not, it, it won't stand because you know we are, what, 11 million healthcare workers in this country. They need us. We need each other. We won't stand for it. And judging by the outrage and what's going on in the community, I think this is a self-correcting system where it's actually going to speed up the emergence of 3.0. Well, Subin, I'm getting a lot of questions about looks like burnout and moral injury. And I, you know, I, let me frame this up. I, you know, I think we could have a, maybe a different take on it, but, you know, you know, we're seeing, you know, nurses come out of the pandemic and, you know, they've described, you know, that experience is like psychological warfare because their mental well-being is deteriorated to such a point that they feel like they can no and they no longer have support uh, from their employer. Um, you know, there was a study that, you know, Kaiser Family Foundation months ago came out with, and they said 62% of healthcare workers reported having uh, mental health issues and, you know, the 50, 60% are, you know, uh, claiming to be burned out. And we know this impacts patient outcomes. I mean, there's so many studies out there that show that poor well-being and moderate to high levels of burnout are associated with poor patient safety outcomes, such as the medical errors that, you know, there were the medical error that we saw in that particular case. And there's some that are even saying that, you know, like calling this burnout is like a travesty. It's insulting and insufficient in describing the pain that I feel when the system prevents me as a doctor or a nurse or whoever, you know, like it forces me to inflict harm on patients. So Zubin, I, you know, I wanted to see if you could maybe, you know, help us understand kind of where we go next how do we reconcile this awakened state that we may have where we have our inner purpose we've tapped into that healing reservoir of capacity that's there by by knowing that we're here to serve in a way we understand the current system radically undermines our ability to do care i guess what i'm wondering is like how do we approach it maybe from a workforce angle but also a leadership angle like like, what kind of leaders do we need in this new era? Are the old incumbents going to be able to take us to Hell 3.0? Oh, man, man. These are the existential questions, right? They, they really are. Uh, so, okay, and this is complex. And again, you, you get into a caterpillar butterfly situation where some of this is not to be predicted because we don't know what will happen. But I'll say this. The nature of both 1.0 and 2.0 is to damage us. The 1.0 actually, there was so much stress on the doctors themselves that, you know, even in the House of God, written in 1980, they were talking about suicides among trainees and so on. It's very, very hard to hold all that on your own shoulders without a team and so on. In 2.0, it's the dehumanization and the fact that our leaders seem to manage rather than lead. If they're non-clinical or they are clinical, it doesn't matter. A lot of the times, they don't seem to get the suffering on the front lines. There's something that I call communalization of pain, which is something where we just sit together and say, hey, here's what I'm going through. Oh, you going through it too? Dang, it's not just me. Because that sense of being a separate self, uh, isolated and lonely and apart is, is poisonous. 
to our mental health. And so a lot of what I do on my show is communalize our pain. We go, you know what? Oh yeah, thank you for saying <laughs> what what I was feeling. I didn't realize everyone else felt it too. Our leaders could start with that without just you know buying pizza and that kind of thing. That's all wonderful, but really understanding that piece of it, giving us the resources. So mental health resources is important. But one, one piece I wanna say is, and I don't wanna undervalue this because I got the sense, Eric, at that retreat, which was 30 healthcare professionals, there were physical therapists and ER docs and orthopedic surgeons and nurses and all kinds of people there. Um, I got the sense that many of them came in, coming in and as we did the small group activities, they were suffering something fierce um, from the, our current system. And I got the sense that by the end, they had a kind of a tool set to actually go back and actualize real change. One example might be this. There's a difference that I talk about between empathy, and this can be taught by leaders, right? It can be embodied by leaders. There's a difference between affective empathy. In other words, what leaders always talk about, oh, we need more empathy. Okay, so what you're telling a nurse then, if they don't understand quite right, because this is our intuition, is you wanna feel that patient's pain as your own, in a very narrow way, oh my God, they're suffering, I feel it, oh, it feels terrible, I wanna do something, and you act in a short-term, maybe non-productive way, give a narcotic-dependent person a narcotic or something like that. Um, that pain that you're feeling is now, you're embodying that pain, and that's taking a toll on you, and then you're, you have your own self-worth issues, and you're like, I can't help this person, and so on. And so that, that's a recipe for moral injury and burnout over time. What about what we learn a little bit during that retreat, which is compassion, which is love and concern unconditionally in the face of suffering. And, you know, I remember there was a point when I woke up in the middle of the night during that retreat feeling like all the suffering of the entire world was in my chest. And I, I took it on myself and it felt terrible. And then suddenly it, you, you realize, no, 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 no. I'm here to bear witness and to do what I can, but this is not my suffering. And that allows for an infinite expression of, of love and patience and compassion that can be grown, that can be practiced. There are monks that do this, this meta compassion of love and compassion that is inexhaustible. It doesn't cause burnout. It's the antidote to burnout. So why aren't we teaching that? Imagine if if, if, if leaders paid for a week of retreat of your secular denomination of your choice, doesn't matter, or non-secular, religious, whatever, go for a week, be in silence, do this work, come back. It would transform our system in record time. So that, that's, that's my thinking on that. Zubin, brother, hero's journey, health 3.0, anti-fragility, empowerment, love, compassion. Thank you, brother. I feel like we, you know, we could just spend days talking about this, but I'd, I'd love to continue, um, you know, maybe at a, at a later time. And uh, I, we appreciate your support of uh, Western Governors University and the Institute for Advancing Health Value and uh, this event that we're doing today. And, you know, I've really enjoyed our time together, brother. Brother, it's uh, such an honor, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with the people that uh, signed up here, and they're all agents of change. Each one of them is on a hero's journey, and we make this collective systemic hero's journey together uh, as both holes and parts of a bigger whole. Okay, I love you. Thanks, Zubin. Do you want to leave us with any parting thoughts where people could find out more about the work that you're doing, the, the show, the podcast? 
Definitely. You know, you can always find us at uh, ZDogMD on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. But if you want to have deeper conversations, and Eric is a part of this, we're on locals.com, uh, just ZDogMD.locals.com. And we have a group of people there that talk about how we might emerge a 3.0 system. So it's more of like a discussion forum about all the things alt-middle. All right. Well, that concludes our summit. We want to thank Zuvin Demania and his wonderful session and Proskauer, our sponsor for today, um, in this uh, uh, most recent uh, closing keynote. We can do this. This is our time to lead a transformation towards Health 3.0 and value-based care. We can do this. Uh, and uh, please uh, let us know here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value how we can support you in this transformation. I'm Eric Weaver, Executive Director for the Institute, and uh, we're going to be signing off. Thanks for the support, and we look forward to partnering with you and being a part of this hero's journey. We'll see you soon. <laughs>